0: Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Today, I talked to Deepa Purushottaman. I hope I got that right. Deepa is a former senior executive. She's actually the first Indian-American woman to become partner at Deloitte. She's a corporate inclusion visionary and is now the co-founder of N-formation. N-Formation. is a company for women of color by women of color, where they provide a brave, safe, new space for professional women of color. And shockingly, it's the first of its kind. I don't know why I'm shocked. I feel like this should have been around forever. But hey, I'm glad it's around now. We had a blast talking. She talks about her 20 plus years in corporate America, her first book that's coming out this March called The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Redefined Power in Corporate America. I learned a lot from this woman. She's pretty awesome. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Deepa Purushottamon. As I'm sure you know, uh, Deepa, there's just so many South Asians. I mean, it's insane. I feel like it's there's been so many South Asians doing amazing things and leading in different industries, but maybe we're just more aware now. I don't know. I have a theory around it. It's interesting. I also think it's part part, like,
1: you know, and again, I saw this in the research that I did. I don't think there was like space for us, to be honest with you, in a lot of ways. I think we're at that nexus where I think there's and there's a different sort of story around the immigrant story and especially being around, you know, being South Asian. I think for a long time there was black and there was white, you know, and there
0: wasn't space for us. So. I want to get into your childhood a little bit, but what year did your parents immigrate here? 69. Okay. Same year as my dad. Okay, Ah, okay. Okay. So It's interesting because I've had a, a variety of guests, some, you know, in their 40s, some in their 20s and, and some of them, their parents had come after 9 11, even. And so that's like a whole different kind of immigrant story for their parents. And it's just, it's so interesting what like all the threads that are connected. Yeah. Out. But let's start with Information because holy God, this is amazing. So you're a co founder of NFormation, a company for women of color by women of color, where you guys provide a brave, safe new space for professional women of color. And this is first of its kind in the community, which Two things, two reactions to this. One, I can't believe it's the first of its kind. It's kind of like, shouldn't have this been there all along? And the second reaction I have is, well, it kind of makes sense that it's happening now. Yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I would have thought the same thing. I would have thought, you know... I. I, Part of this is I just think COVID in itself has changed how we gather and how we what we think of as a community, right? I think there there's probably been organizations like as I've met with the women of color, right? There's sororities, there's church groups. There are ways in which women of color get together. I think there's been less focus professionally. Again, there's been segments, but part of what we're doing is different. Is that we bring all kinds of women of color together. So what we have found is there are Latino groups or there are you know South Asian women groups or there are Black you know women getting together, but there isn't this diaspora. Um, of coming together, because I think sometimes we don't always think our issues are shared. And so both between information and in research that I've done for my book and some other projects I've been doing, I found in the corporate space, I'm not saying everything is the same, but there's enough shared challenge that there is opportunity and power in us coming together. And so that's why we've chosen to do it. We've also skewed a little bit more senior, although we're about to announce some things to to really bring in some of the less tenured folks, because I think there's a set of challenges there that are different, but also important. But I think that's part of why we say we're the first of our kind. What we have found with the women who are showing up, and we have a really long wait list, is that they haven't found other things. or of other part of other women's organizations, but they come to our group. We had an orientation yesterday, and within the first 10 minutes, seven of the women said, I've not been um, in a group where I can just shorthand or shortcut to the conversations we're having now. There's always a lot of setup. There's always a lot of backstory when you're one of the only women of color in a room. And What we're finding is when we're together, we can just get right to the heart of what's the challenge.
0: Right. You're not tiptoeing around anything, right? And I also think, you know, what you said, um, you know, with each of our communities, Latino community, Latin, sorry, Latinx community, the Black community, South Asians, we have historically tended to stick to our own. Correct. Um, And I think the combination of COVID, the combination of Black Lives Matters, the other president, we had like all this stuff that's happened in the past five, 10 years, I think has helped us all realize that guess what? It would be even better to to work together. Absolutely. Uh, and we call all kind of are facing the same challenges, and it's it's kind of powerful.
1: It is really powerful. So,
0: as with any startup, I'm sure there's an amazing journey you've had. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of the, the conception of N-Formation up till launch? Yes so
1: we're only a year old it feels like we are you know longer in our existence because of the number of women who've shown up and also because of some of the attention we've gotten we've got we did some research with Billie Jean King in the fall and it got um, international attention, I should say, not just national attention. We ended up on TED on the TED stage, and it comes out next Wednesday. So it's, I think, just we have as a new startup, we've had some amazing opportunities because I think we we are working in a space women of color where everyone realizes it's our moment, and there's more to more to be done. Um, our backstory is Ra and I, who's my business partner, uh, met about five years ago. She was my executive coach, so I was a senior partner at Deloitte. Um, I, you know, towards the latter part of my career, led our women's initiative and. In, in, in in addition to uh, managing clients, because you know that was a, a second job, not my full-time job. Um, and I was knee-deep when I met her, I think, in questions around purpose and what I wanted to do with my life. I had a very successful career as a good South Asian, like I made partner early, all the things, all the trappings of success. But some really big questions about, was I really adding value to the world and what else? Because I had another 20 years at least in front of me at that point. And so I met her and we started doing some really big work on, you know, what is my purpose and what do I want to be doing? Around that same time, I moved um, across the country. I got married. A lot of other changes happened. And so it, it started to open up bigger questions for me. I ended up on the biggest project of my career, which then, you know, opened up more questions, just getting married and working, you know, significant hours and trying to make it all work. And very long story short, I really started asking questions about what, belonging. Like, do I want to stay here? Does, does this make sense for me? What else do I want to be doing? And in an attempt to get those answers, because at that point, I'd been at Deloitte for 16 years, um, I started meeting with women of color outside of Deloitte just to figure out, like, where do people go? What does one do? Like, if I'm asking questions about legacy and contribution, like, what are other women who are more senior than me doing? And so it started one-on-one. Then it turned into two-person, five-person. And then at one point, Ron, I did about a dozen dinners across the country with 30 women of color each. We would get in these rooms, I thought, for an hour or two to just talk about, you know, success and, you know, companies that are, are, you know, healthy and happy for women of color. And we would be in the rooms for six and seven hours, no exaggeration. Sometimes at two o'clock in the morning, we were still sitting there, you know, eating chocolate and drinking wine because the women were so starved for conversations around isolation, around difference. I mean, it's it's why I use the term, the first, a few, the only. So many of the women in the room were really senior and successful, but they were one of the first, a few, and the only. And so that became the fodder for the book and the research and kind of my leaving, but also the basis for the company. When we initially started information, we wanted to um, recreate the magic of the dinners because women would say it was the best thing they had been to, in, you know, in a year or two, uh, if not ever. And um, so that was our, our mission or our plan: we'll do something like the dinners and bring women of color together. Then COVID happened, then George Floyd's murder happened, and how you talk about race at work has completely changed. And so our business model evolved a little bit, and here we are. So we've, we're completely virtual. We have women from the US and Canada, although a lot of international women have shown up, and we've just kind of paused there just because the topics and the conversations are slightly different. And we're doing everything virtually, and the community is growing, and we do weekly programming, and you know, safe space conversations, conversations on different topics. We bring in thought leaders. We've done research now. You know, We're about to uh, lift a board initiative to place women of color on boards. And so, yeah, a lot is happening and happening quickly. And I think the model turned from dinner to what are all the things women of color need to be really successful once they've entered their careers. But I would say mid-career plus, like, are really asking different questions. It's not the you know, how do I show up and and, you know, how do I get my review? It's kind of a different set of questions, really around navigating as a woman of color, which I think is fundamentally different. And we've never given ourselves permission to talk about that before. And here we are. We're in a community where we're talking about it, and it's powerful.
0: Well, you seem to me, just by talking to you for five minutes, see like you are a lifelong learner, which I love, and I think it's so key to be like that. And I hope you continue these dinners because I feel like, I haven't been to one, and I'm going to whenever you come to the East Coast. Well, we could do that again because we're still, you know. <laughs> yes, definitely. I feel like that that kind of environment feels safe for women. It's a place where women can have a voice. On a side note, I'm applying to an all-girls school for both of my daughters. And they asked me the other day, why all-girls school? And I, my first thought, and, and, and maybe this is how you feel as well about information, is that it just feels like a safer space for women to girls uh, and women to explore who they really are without this whole boys can do girls can do thing. You know, it it just feels like they're going to find their voice faster. And, and and maybe, and that's how information and formation is um, with, with the women that are part of it. So I want to talk a little bit about the concept of it. So it's a membership based program. How do you vet members and, what about those women that aren't in corporates? What about entrepreneurs like, like myself? Like, what, how do you deal with that?
1: So when we started, again, the dinner started as corporate women, because I was looking a lot of, for stay or go. That's really where the dinner started. Um, and I thought we would have mostly corporate women, to be honest with you, when we launched information. It's not all corporate. So what's been fascinating is, although I would say like the majority is corporate, so I'm, I'm comfortable with like a 60% number that's corporate. We have a lot of women who left corporate to start their own businesses who are entrepreneurs. We have some women in the military. So we have a couple of really high senior ranking women who are uh, who have left the military recently and are, or are still in the military and looking again for safe space or in community around women of color topics, which they can't find. You know where they are as an only. We have professors. That's actually the thing that surprised me the most. We have a whole handful, um, maybe a few dozen professors. So right, I mean, it makes sense. They're the only tenured or on tenure track professor at their universities and academia. And so same types of conversation. We have nonprofit leaders um, who are kind of struggling with all these same topics and feeling very alone and isolated in their roles. And so again, I thought it would be all corporate, but it's not. It's it's all genres across the country, all industries from tech to you know, consumer products. And um, what's fascinating is it doesn't matter. It's almost like, and I had not thought of this when we created it, but it's almost like, so employee resource groups or ERGs, like those groups that come together within companies. It's almost like we've created one that is agnostic of company and agnostic of industry. And it's just talking about what it's like to navigate as a woman of color. So- Yeah, it's more diverse, and more people have shown up than I thought. And and actually, some women in politics too, because they're also like the only one running for a seat or the only one sitting in a seat, you know, in a state government or in a local community. And so we have that as
0: well. I think it's just really exciting that women and and people in general nowadays are content and staying where they are. That people are able to ask these questions and shift their narrative at the age of 30 or 40 or 50 or whenever it is. There's no timeline anymore about, okay, you do 20 years of this and then you're done. You know, and it's exciting. Again, going back to the lifelong learner concept, which I I just, I I love it. I feel like that's who I am because I've shifted my, my career has shifted like 20 times. And so I originally am an attorney and I've been a backup dancer. I've worked at Enron. Uh, Enron was my first job. Um, I'm a writer so I and I got afforded those opportunities because of uh, my husband's job and this and that, but realized that I Having the option to kind of ask, okay, is this what I want to do, and change it is really special, you know.
1: It's also really unique. Um, part of what I have learned in meeting with all these women of color, and I've met with a lot of Asian women in particular, is we're not taught that, to be honest. With yeah. You. I mean, your story is very unusual as a as a brown woman because most of us are taught pick a career, stay in your lane. Success is kind of right, security, right. And what I'm meeting is a lot of women of color trying to reprogram that and undo that, or really do that differently because parents have convinced them that's what they need to do, to be honest.
0: Totally. And I think, and I'm sure like your parents and my parents, like, I think that's the only way they really knew, you know, because when they came here, they were making it to survive. They came for education. They didn't have that option to kind of, you know, do what they wanted and figure out a narrative. And uh, I think they just focused on one thing and went with it, which is very admirable as well. And, you know, I'll ask my dad, who was an engineer for, you know, 40 years or whatever, you know, did you ever want to do anything else? He'll say no, but I'm not sure if he ever asked, you know, himself. And so I think we're very lucky South Asians in this, in this generation to be able to ask that. I think largely due to our parents supporting us so much. Absolutely. So I guess what can people expect out of this membership uh, with you guys? And then is there a cost? And what about those that can't afford it?
1: Yeah, so all good questions. Um, we uh, a quarter into our programming, uh, started pulling our women just to see, you know, what the feedback was and what the impact was. And just within the first four months, we started to hear feedback from women that almost 25% of them asked for bigger jobs, left their jobs, or um, negotiated larger salaries or like additions to their uh, focus, their their you know their role description as a result of just being in the community. Um, and I I don't I'm not in any way attributing that to raw and I, although we do a lot of coaching and teaching, that's really not where it's coming from. I think it's from seeing other women of color and realizing it's happening to all of us, right? And realizing that if you don't ask for more, you may not get more. And seeing yourself and hearing that story over and over again kind of empowers them to ask for what they want and what they need. So I would say that's kind of the biggest impact just from a numbers perspective and what we've seen. You just see um, women's eyes light up. I've seen some women come into the community who I think were really struggling and questioning, especially with COVID and being moms who are you know managing and homes schooling and all the things who are just really burnt out or traumatized. I would even say I use the word trauma more than burnt out for women of color. Um, And so I think it's just a safe space where they can have some of that conversation in a really different way. Um, we do have a, a price point and we are in the process of adjusting some of that because of the feedback that, you, um, that you're that you raising. So most of our women are professional women in some capacity. Um, and so they understand there's a fee for being part of a membership community. What we have found though, and, and Ron, I interview every single woman who comes in the community, although we're about to pivot that model because I think between us, we've interviewed over 600 women of color. It's wow. just not possible to continue to do that yeah. Um, yeah. as we grow and scale. But part of what we were realizing is we have placeholders women who are less tenured, right? Women who are just entering the workforce, not because they're not amazing, but because we didn't feel like we could absorb them and the issues that they were facing were different. And so what we're going to announce over the next few weeks and next few months is that we want to do some sort of different programming and placeholdering for them, probably at a different price point that allows them to be in community, meet each other, meet some of these other women who also want to give back. I mean, that's the other amazing thing. So much of what I find with women of color is they're not just focused on their job, they're focused on legacy and contribution. And so finding a way that they can you know get mentors mentorship from these other women who are in the community and so I would say that's our biggest um, pivot point probably for this year is to open up the membership a little bit more because we knew that that segment needed something, but we didn't feel like we could we could do everything in our first year. And we, now that we have enough online content and some other things, I think there are ways to bring them together and have the conversation they need because the conversations for someone who's in retirement are very different than someone who's just starting their career. And we need to figure out how we adapt and provide curriculum for each of those.
0: Right. Because, I mean, thinking about it, how amazing... Looking at myself at 22, how amazing would it have been to have something like this to go to right away? You know, to kind of to, to kind of understand more of. Because I, you know, and I, again, I'll ask you about your childhood. But growing up, it was doctor, lawyer, engineer. I mean, I had five choices. Um, I didn't know till I just turned 40 that I really wanted to be a journalist. I didn't know. I didn't really have the resources to even like the understanding, oh, maybe I should try to figure this out or go to talk to someone or get advice from someone else. It was just kind of, it just kind of went with it. And I so I think it's, it's truly special to do it with those that are just starting out uh, so they can, they can focus on their path a little bit more. And then, and then really quickly, do you guys have advisors or mentors? Do you partner them up? And if you do, who are they?
1: Yeah, we are going to start that program now. So we have some women in our community that we call legacy women, and these are women who are sitting on boards currently, or in you know like far into retirement conversations. And I'm not saying you have to be retired to have a legacy conversation, but I'm saying we have this group of women who I think are asking different questions and are just in a different place in their lives. So one of the things we've talked about doing is creating wisdom circles. Right? How do we get those women to meet with our women in some in a curated fashion where they can share their lessons learned on topics that really speak to them? So there's a woman in particular that comes to mind. Her name is Deb and her big thing is she's she was a senior executive, retired now, is health. Like she realized that she didn't focus on working out and taking care of herself as she rose in her role. I mean, she literally got to the C-suite and so although she can talk about a whole bunch of things, one of her, the passions and the things she loves to talk about is health and like literally finding time to take care of your body at the same time that you're doing your job. Right. And so, you know, how do we pull out those stories or pull out what's really passionate to the women themselves and bring that to the group and so that's, that's another piece of what we're we're focused on in this next year. And so
0: I think that'll be really exciting and different because when do you get to hear those stories and when do you actually get to, you know? You and, and then how how do you connect to these people, right? Like just just even connecting, so many people people don't have that network at all. And so I think that's, that's key really. So I'm very excited for you guys. This is amazing. So then you also mentioned the book, The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Redefined Power in Corporate America, which is coming out this March? Miss March, yeah. Congratulations. You wrote a book. That's a big deal. So I, I think you kind of answered this. This book was maybe a culmination of all your research done for and for information, or was this more than that?
1: Yeah, this book actually came before information in some ways, right? So I wrote, I left Deloitte uh, a year and a half ago. So it feels like a whole new life, by the wow, way. Wow, congrats. The company. Um, and so I would say the research for the book um, probably came about as we were defining what the business model would be for information. And we were kind of lifting both at the same time. Um, I think the interviews for the book happened earlier. So I interviewed over 500 women of color and their stories are in the book, which is also really unusual. You don't usually get that volume or hear our stories in a book firsthand. And it's also, I did it through a traditional publisher. So it's a Harper yeah. Collins business book, which is also, again, unusual. Part of what I wanted to do was, I think um, it's amazing and everyone should write in whatever you know traditional, non-traditional format they can. But part of what I wanted to be able to do was to actually go the traditional publishing route and say, this is a business book. It's a book for women of color, but we're part of business and our voices matter and we can be leaders too. Um, so yes, I would say in some ways they were parallel tracked, but this almost became the initial research. And then we've built on this research for information. The re- the project we did with Billie Jean King was almost the second layer to what was in the book, right? So um, yeah, they, they're kind of tied together, but I would say this is really work that has been close to my heart for the last three years um, you know, and some I'm really excited that it's it's finally launching. It's like a baby, right? It like, is a baby, right? A baby.
0: Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the Billie Jean King project? Yeah, so
1: we went to or I should say, I should say, they came to us when we launched our. Uh, when we launched information, and just said that the work we were doing was so important. Part of, and I didn't know this at the time, but part of what Billie Jean King's leadership initiative focuses on is inclusion in workplaces, all kinds of inclusion. And so our work was so core to what their leadership center does and the work that they want to do in the world. And so um, they just kind of opened, opened the door and said, if there's anything we can ever do together, let us know. At the time, we were in new, literally, they, they reached out the first week where we were in existence and there was some press about us that came out. Um, I just happened to reach back out to them a few weeks later and we just started a conversation around wouldn't it be amazing to do real research? Because again, I don't think that I've ever seen. So we interviewed in recent, and, and met with over 1,700 women of color um, and uh, women, I should say, women and women of color, to do that research with Billie Jean King through surveys and through focus groups. And um, it is a full, you know, 30 page report on what we're finding about their experiences. And so similar to the book, similar to this research, it's very rare to actually have something done in our voice and to have real data and real research. And, and to that, so that extent, right? So that to that, extent, that number, right. Exactly. So that's why uh, when it came out in November, I want to say like the 15th, 10th or 15th, like the middle of November, it got a ton of attention right away because um, I think there's a lot of amazing reports. I love the McKinsey report that comes out annually on women in the workplace. And they, this year did, you know, and I think last year as well, a segment on women of color. But what we wanted to do was make it the entire paper. And so the paper is literally written in the voice of women of color. It tells our story. Stories, it's kind of um you know, I call it snarky, but I think it's what we call it is like real talk. Like the entire paper is defined as real talk. And you don't often hear that. And part of what we're trying to showcase for people is that women of color have interesting lived experiences that make us natural-born leaders. And you don't even allow us to talk about that or bring that to work or kind of prize that as leadership. We're all f- fitting into this mold of this one sort of leader, right? We're all trying to mimic what's come before us. And those are white male executives that don't really resonate with a lot of us and ask us to really stub who we are and kind of erase who we are. And so much of the work that I'm doing across, whether it's the book or information, is that we have voices, we have stories, we have power. But we're muting that power if we don't find ways to to harness it and to bring all of that forward. And so it's more complicated than just be yourself. That's not what my message is, because like, that's not going to work for you in all places. But it's that we have to change the narrative of w- what leadership looks like. And leadership can look like you and I, but we don't often think of it that way or paint that picture in media.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, maybe, in, and I'm not sure if I'm putting this the right way, I think for us, for women of color, it's kind of a, we're kind of having to do a double hurdle here. You know, we're women. So naturally, women, historically, naturally, whatever you want to call it, have always been a little bit more silent in, I believe, in corporate America, in the boardrooms, in, in any room, in the, in the in the classroom from day one. Um, And then two women of color and and particularly South Asian women are also kind of raised culturally in a certain way. And so people like you and I have to kind of step over both of those obstacles. Um, and, And it takes a while to get there.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: which is why I started I mean, a podcast. This is my voice. And yeah, no, I mean,
1: I think this is amazing. It, I mean, it's it's about voice, right? I think that's what we're both doing in different formats. And I have a chapter in the book that talks about the, the almost the the dual worlds that we navigate as women of color, right? And I think they're different for Latina women than they are for Indian women than they are for Black women, and even within those segments, right? They're all they're all going to there's going to be nuances. But so much of the story that I heard from South Asian women was, I'd go home, and my family or my extended family, or my in laws, had a different expectation of what I was. Supposed to do at home, so I might be an executive at work. When I, you know, went home, it was like, "Where's the chai?" That's literally like a story that I got told. You know, this
0: like kind of reminds me of Indra Nui's story. Yes, uh, her, and so she's, she's in mom, the boat, right? Yeah. Her
1: mom said, "Go get the milk." Right? She came home. I think after just, I think the story is of, of just having been named. CEO, right? And she walks in to tell her mom that she's really excited. And this is a big announcement. And her mom kind of mutes their stop, stunts the conversations, like, go get the milk. Like, you need to go to the grocery store because we ran out of milk. Like, you know, it's great that you just got named CEO, but, you know, in this house, like, your job is to do other things. And I, unfortunately, good and bad, like, a lot of women of color told me those stories. And so that's part of the complexity. And there's no space to talk about that, right? We're like literally dealing with two worlds and all these other things we've had to overcome. But I don't see it as a negative. I see it as a positive, but we need to kind of change that,
0: the how we, how we talked about it. I'm glad you said that because I see it as a positive too. And a lot of my previous guests have been angry about it. And I'm like, well, I think at the end of the day, everything you go through makes you who you are. There are positives about kind of the way we were raised. And you just got to take from that. You, know? you are a busy woman. I was like reading about you on LinkedIn and, and Googling you. I'm like, how's this girl standing? So you're also part of the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, you as a woman and public policy program leader in practice is that correct? Is are you is that a per, like a teaching gig? What is that?
1: Yeah, it's a fellowship. So I went to school years ago. You know, I just happened to be in conversations about doing something with them. Uh, you know, board wise. Okay. Yeah, I mentioned to them that I was thinking of leaving, and so we turned that board conversation into this fellowship opportunity. And so yes, under that umbrella, some of my research they initially sponsored, and we had conversations with. Obviously, with COVID, things change. Otherwise. I was going to, I live in California, right? They're based in Boston and everything went virtual, but the plan had been to do like office hours and to teach on a regular basis and do some other things. And so we, we've been a little bit flexible, but it's been a really great affiliation and a way to do some research. I actually just did a, a piece with um, three professors last week that came out in Harvard business review on women of color and negotiation and how we negotiate differently. And that came from my position there and some of my work
0: there. Very so nice. I'm gonna, yeah. we, my husband went to HBS
1: Ah, okay. uh, so I'm yeah. very
0: familiar with Boston and the Harvard campus. I used to take the Chinatown bus from New York every week. Ah, got I was it. like, yeah. you better propose to me after this two years <laughs> <that>. of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so so there, you know, you I and you know, I I had read that you are focusing on advancement of women of color in corporate America, of course. This is a loaded question. I know there I know there's not one answer to this, but if you could maybe sum it up in a few sentences. What will it take to advance women of color? What is it going to take? Is it, you know, because I think we look at advancement in all sorts of sectors and, and industries and areas and progression isn't linear, right? It goes in ebbs and flows. And so then how do we keep it going?
1: It's not an easy answer because I feel like there's so many different ways you can come at them, but yeah, a couple of people, I mean, some people, I was on a, a more business oriented podcast earlier this week and they were all about the metrics, right? And to me, the metrics aren't what's important because you can have women of color in those seats, but if they don't have space to use their voice, if they're not actually able to make change or show up as their full, you know, in their full voice, like that's not really actually a helpful seat, right? So I make a little bit of a distinction in that sort of way. Um in, in the book and even in with information what we're talking about is empowerment in different forms so some of this is that I think there's work that women of color can do for themselves to find their voice to kind of speak up to realize what's important to them I talk a lot about the indoctrination or the programming we get growing up especially in the US as women of color and we have to let go and figure out what really works for us there's work we can do as individuals so that we can show up differently then there's work we can do as a community part of this is us finding other women of color and realizing in order to change structures we have to do it together so I call the power of me and the power of we. We need both of those pieces if we're going to make change. Um, And then the other part is we need companies to realize and to start to make space for us in different ways, right? That um, we have very different lived experience that actually can be a superpower, but you have to let us talk about that. You have to let us, you know, exercise that one of the biggest findings in the book was that so many women of color thought they would get to the seat, right, the C-level, you know, the, the senior seat, and then they would do it their way, right? At that point, then I can do it my way. I'll show up, at, you know, and, and start to change policy and really, you know, show up as myself. And what I found over and over again is it was harder for them to do that once they got to the seat because there was more of an expectation they were going to conform and behave in certain ways at that certain seat. So part of what I'm advocating is we have to start to realize, and again, I, I think it's really unhelpful to say be your whole self all the time because that's just not practical. But you have to realize it's a constant choice and that every day you're going to make some choices in how you show up and how you navigate. And we need companies to start to see leadership really differently. Uh, one of the big things that we're doing with information is we want to rewrite how we think of board ready. Right? Board ready usually means like you've managed a and L, you've had global experience, you've had these ten or three, you know, ten or twelve check checklist sort of items that are very traditional. And candidly, it's mostly white men who've sat in those seats or had the previous experience to kind of meet that criteria. What we need to start to do is realize we have experience too. It's just different experience, and so the criteria is right? Skewed or, or, or rigged. And right. we need to change how that, how and, that is. and as valuable. It's just different. As valuable. Right. And maybe more valuable. Like today, like if you look at where we're headed, we're headed to a much more diverse you know workplace. COVID has opened up all these questions about what it means to be a mom and work and women in the workplace. Like, I don't think white men sitting in the seats can have those conversations. So we're headed in a place where we need more diverse voices, where we need more perspective. And I think women of color are in unique positions to bring that more than anybody else because of the experience. Experiences we've had in the, the ways we've had to write, um, ebb and flow and, and, and make it work. Right. Well, and we're, now we're and badass. We're, that's
0: why. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I want to get your opinion on something. It's been kind of a, another kind of theme in, in my interviews with many South Asian women. What are your thoughts, honest thoughts about South Asian women supporting other South Asian women? What have you seen? It's a great question. Um, Second most surprising thing from my research.
1: So first surprising was almost all the women of color I met were sick in some sort of fashion. So we can come back to that, right? Illnesses that were usually not like clear illnesses. So like more mysterious illnesses. So we'll come back to that. But the second biggest was that we don't help each other as women. Um, And that became the basis for the Billie Jean King research. So what I found is that uh, most of the women of color, you know, I would end my interviews, like, and they would usually be hour-long interviews. And then I'd say the last, you know, last few minutes, is there anything else I didn't ask you? Anything else you want to share and you could literally hear their voices get quiet, almost you know, nine out of 10, if not 10 out of 10 women, their voices get quiet. I'm talking about 500 women of color. And they would whisper, they'd be like, can you talk about how we don't help each other? And then I'd unpack that, and it would be that white women aren't helping women of color but women of color aren't helping women of color. So black women, Indian women, right? And then even among South Asian women, we're not helping each other. And that all comes down to this idea that we think there's one seat at the table. It's based on scarcity. So there's one seat at the table. So if you and I know there's one seat at the table, you and I are going to be fighting for it because we think only one brown woman or one woman's going to get it. We need to rewrite that narrative because if we believe there's one seat, there's always going to be competition. And who told us there's one seat? Who decided that there were 12 seats at the table? Like that's the narrative and that's where I'm saying that companies have worked to do because we the system has set us up to be in this battle with one another and to, and to kind of feel like we got to elbow each other. And that doesn't help any of us. And it doesn't really help, I think, what we've unpacked with COVID and how work, I mean, the bottom line is work is not working for anybody. And that's really what we've learned. And what are we going to do about it? I think that's one of the most pressing conversations that we're having in places, finally. And what does that mean? And I think that it all comes down to scarcity. And absolutely, we are not helping each other. And so that's that's part of what we need to change. And I think the biggest message
0: um, in the research that we put out with Billie Jean King, is that we need to do that differently. I love the way you put that deep, deep because I mean, I think for me, I I've learned that over the past two years doing this podcast um, that there the people you would think would be supporting you don't, and then the people that you have would think would be like hell no do, um, and sadly, it's a lot of South Asian women that have not supported me in particular for this podcast, for whatever reason. It's just interesting. It's interesting. And I'm like, wonder why? You know, I, never, I never even reflected on that before until now. And uh, it's sad. It
1: is sad. No, it's. Just, I had the same experience when I said I was going to be a writer. And there was a handful of uh, women of color who were wildly supportive and have been my biggest advocates. But initially, as a corporate person, there was a handful that were not they were actually the least helpful. And I I can say I spent a bunch of tears on some of them as well, just because the feedback was really startling. And I think it comes from this place of of scarcity, this place of there can only be one of us, or if you get the limelight, then it's taking something from me. And that just doesn't feel helpful, but that's also something that we're all taught. And I think that's part of what we need to undo, you know, because it again doesn't it doesn't work for men either, but they just, you know, there's enough seats for them that maybe they don't feel that same sort of pressure.
0: Well again, I think it goes back to the double obstacle thing for us. You know, we're we're women, so we already feel like there's not enough seats and then we're South Asian women. So there's like once one quote unquote one seat. And so but I'm glad that that you said that because that's kind of been what a lot of people think a lot of yeah. women in South Asian women. Yeah. So you were at Deloitte for more than 20 years, which is like rare to hear nowadays. Although my husband is kind of like you. He's been with Pepsi. He's with Pepsi for 16 years now. So he's getting up, he's getting up there <laughs> and he's like a rare bird. Like, no, we don't know many people that have stuck to a corporate that long. So I think you two would totally get along. But I don't know why, again, I can't believe this, but you were the first Indian American woman at Deloitte to,
1: part. to make partners.
0: And that was just 20 years ago, 20 years ago? No, not
1: even 20 years ago. I think it was, uh, let's say, 14 years ago at this point.
0: Again, it kind of goes back to information like, oh gosh, like, how has this not happened yet? But then kind of makes sense too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the dance or that's the challenge, right? Or that's the surprising aspect of this. Like, you know, I get on stage and when I said, when I used to be with Deloitte and say that, people would clap and I'd be like, please don't clap because. There should be more of us, right? That that I mean, and I'm not blaming the company. I'm just saying in general, there's not enough of us, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but yes, and there were a lot of wonderful things that came as a result of being the first. But part of what I'm trying to put light on is there were a lot of challenges as well. And we don't talk about that. You know, we talk about the trailblazers, but we don't actually. And we want, and then as a result, right? We think why can't more of us be trailblazers? But we don't talk about all the things that those trailblazers sacrificed, and that's really what I was trying to give voice to: is that Yes, there's a positive story, but there's a there's a shadow story to all of this That's as well. And like, let's be honest about that because we're not going to change anything if we don't if we don't shed enough light on that. There
0: has to be a shadow story, otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. You don't jump up to the top without a few experiences under your exactly, exactly. Um And to that point, and again, this is maybe not a loaded question, but probably hard for you to answer uh, in, in ten seconds. But I guess you know you you were there for so long, and throughout your journey there. What do you feel like was a dominant narrative towards women of color while you were there?
1: You know, I don't know that I even saw that there was a narrative. I think it was more it was more here's what leadership looks like, right? Or or and it wasn't even said out loud. I think I think it was just kind of like the examples you saw ahead of you. I mean, this is what I hear from all the women, the examples that like suggest something. Consciously and unconsciously. So I don't I I know very few women of color. I mean, and now I think we talk about it more who've genuinely felt uncomfortable. I'm not saying racism doesn't happen. I think there's lots of microaggressions and all of those things, but I think for many of us who've been in corporate for a really long time, there was more of a um there's a more of a this is what success looks like and it doesn't look like you so there was more of an assimilation message I think there was more of a conforming message there was more of a these are the things you have to do and whether that was told to us or not I think a lot of us chose to do that and in the end I think a lot of us I mean most of the women I met I don't want to say they were unhappy but I want to say they were questioning like was the sacrifice worth it and so that's really what I think needs to change and um, you know I love this line, um, and it took me a long time to come to this. I think it's a really interesting conversation to think most women of color are in a system that wasn't created for them, wasn't created by them, and candidly probably doesn't even really want them there, right, to show up in their full selves. And so what is that doing to us? And that's why, to come back to the health story, I think so many of the women of color I met were ill, right, with skin rashes and stomach problems, fertility issues, because they're traumatized from being in a system that doesn't allow them to show up or be in a full voice. And as a result, they're really kind of muting them themselves and erasing parts of themselves which causes physical manifestations completely um, yeah I, th- I think i mean the bottom line is a lot of women of color are coming to us in information because they're not happy right and they, yes, they want more power they want more advancement conversation like how do i do this how do i do that but a lot of them are really struggling with do i want to stay here right is this, is, this a, is the is this the best
0: use of my Gifts because it's hard, right? I, uh, I mean, a, a quick personal story. I got um, diagnosed with ulcerative colitis about two and a half years ago. Um, I, you know, we got married to a wonderful man, love him, God bless him. But you know, we've been following his path, his career, and I found, my, found myself being the Indian wife, trying over and over again to start a career, uh, to have a voice, and it led me to to this this illness, um, the stress of not having one, I think. And I kid you not, once I started this and and kind of kept it going, it's it's changed my dynamic with my body. I, I feel I feel like I'm a different person now. Just being able to find my path and my journey and my voice and not having that typical, not typical anymore, but historically typical Indian wife role. And it's, yeah, it's interesting how it manifested into something physical.
1: No, thank you for sharing that. But I, I, my story is almost similar. I mean, not not the husband part, because I got married later um, and I married a partner at Deloitte. So we, and he left two years before I did, but we were both partners at Deloitte. So we had the same job. So there's a lot of that sort of okay. dynamic. Fascinating. Um, but part of why I left was because I ended up finally, 16 doctors later, getting diagnosed with Lyme disease that was triggered wow. during that crazy. Break- project. And it was a series of these like growing physical symptoms that I couldn't really understand, hard to diagnose, all the things. And I think at the end of the day, it was because I wasn't in full voice. I wasn't really where I was supposed to be. And I think sometimes when you end up with those physical manifestations, it's the universe telling you, like you're not in your right place. Totally. So I'm going to do some things to you to make you question. I totally agree I'm that that's true of almost all the women I met. To be honest with you, I think when you're not doing your purpose, when you're not in your full power, when you're not in your full voice, your body lets you know. And I think as women, and that this is also there too, as women of color, like we come from cultures where our bodies know, right? We were come from cultures where we were like, historically, our cultures used to listen to our bodies, like with Ayurveda and all the other things. And we're now in a place where we kind of ignore all that, right? It's all about productivity. And so I think our bodies act out because we're not listening.
0: Yeah. It's a slap, a little bit of a wake up call, right? Um, So quickly, I wanted to talk about your childhood. Uh, I know you went to Wellesley College, Harvard Kennedy School, LSE, London School of Economics. So you were the you were the good Indian girl. You, you did the right path. Um, was this coming from you, from parents, from both? How was your household growing up? Was it a typical like traditional Indian household where you had to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, kind of like mine? Or or was it or were your parents a little bit more open?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like it's, it's like, yes and no. Like, so there's definitely like confusion or things I'm still, I think, sorting out as I, I, as I talk more about my childhood. So it was me and my sister. So I'm the oldest, uh, older by four years. Um, So two daughters, right? So there was a lot of like, you know, if I had boys, right? Um, And so you know, people ask me, like, what made you believe you can break barriers and do all these things? It's because I remember my dad saying, if I had a boy, he would go cut the grass or he would have done this. And I'd be like, I'll show you like, you know, screw that. Like, that's kind of how I grew up and what I learned. And so there was a lot of like rebellion as a result of that. There was a lot of I can do anything as a result of that, because it wasn't like you're a girl. So you can only do these things. I think because there were two girls, we were taught we could do anything, you know, anything other than dating, like dating was like this, you know, black box of like Indian confusion, but anything outside of that, we It was very um, gender, you know, um, uh, boundary breaking, I should say. So we weren't taught, like, this is your role or this is anything other than when it came to dating. Um, so I felt like I could probably do anything. Uh, there was a pressure around going to the right schools and kind of that sort of path, for sure. Like, the Ivy League process, like, that that was, like, talked about from when we were little. And my sister and I both, you know, checked off those marks for my parents. Um, but at some point, I think I inherited that. Like it became my my thing too. I think my work now, and I talk a lot about shedding and caring, shedding messages that don't serve you and carrying forth ones that do. Um I think that was their message, but I don't know that I knew it at the time. And I think that's part of what what you take on when you're when you grow up in a South Asian household, like what is success and what does that look like? And success doesn't always look like health and you know real happiness and um, stability. It's kind of those definitions of stability are go to the right school, make a lot of money, be in a corporate job, or be in a traditional job. I should even say, right, Not a corporate safe, but something safe, right? where there's an income and you know there's stability. And I think. Um, when you don't do that track, there's a lot of questioning. So consulting was not that track, by the way. Like, Deloitte was not that track because it was confusing, right? I lived in a, I lived out on a plane. Like, I did four cities a week sometimes. I was single until I was 40. Like, my parents are, were confused by what I did. Um, so I don't think I grew up in that traditional way. Like, I grew up, like, I think, what like a, how a boy child would grow up in an Indian family. Um, you know, And, uh, you know, that brings with it its own sorts of confusions and thoughts. But I also think it made me... Um, believe I could do anything. That's right. As, yeah. I yeah. mean,
0: he wrote a book. <laughs> are your, are your parents still around? Yeah, they are.
1: They, um, they split, split their time between, um, New Jersey where I grew up and India, cause my sister actually went to India as an expat. Um, and so did there. I.
0: Oh, I, sp- okay. I spent five years, well, four years in India. I spent one year uh, after Enron, cause somehow Enron did not work out. And then I was a backup. That's when I was a backup dancer and I DJed there and stuff. And then we spent three years there after we got married, uh, expats with Pepsi. So I was in okay. Delhi and Bangalore. Okay. So it's, yes, a, it's, a, it's an experience. I'm sure your it's sister true. is having. I want
1: to say she's probably on year nine, um, I think. I lose, I've lose. i lost track, like, because it's almost a decade. Yeah. Um, and she's in Mumbai. And part of why she's there is because uh, she has a, a really cool executive job, but she also, we started a school, a leadership academy for girls in Pune, And so that's part of why she stayed. Um, and now she's raising her kids there, which is a whole different set of questions because her kids are, her husband is Puerto Rican and Cuban. And so- like now, you have different, you know, all the identity questions you have here being Indian, like are now transported there because they're not 100% Indian, right? That's so it's, amazing, it's kind of funny to watch that set of conversations.
0: Yeah, well, Bombay, if you're going to live anywhere, that, that that's the place to be. Still, my favorite city there. Um, yeah, would love to love to chat with her, see how see what her experience has been like. We went there before the kids, so it's a little bit different. So I also know. I mean, again, like I like I mentioned, I was reading all your stuff. I'm like, this. I can talk to this girl for like uh, two hours. You're in the. Uh, you're an Aspen fellow. Uh, you're on the board of Avasara. right? That's the school. Okay, Avasara. Yep, okay, cool uh-huh. uh, My parents uh, actually have helped build schools through Manasadna. Okay. Uh, As well, and so they go. They try to go back and forth as well.
1: Yeah, before COVID, I went every year because this. I mean, this was a labor of love. Like we built a whole campus, and it's one school. So the idea was we teach boys how to be leaders, but in India, there's not, there's no sort of boarding slash leadership academy for girls, and so it was a very different sort of model. So it's it's very small. It was 400 girls. It wasn't trying to be thousands. It wasn't scale. It was like you can actually teach leadership. But you have to create a different atmosphere. So it's a very different space. I would love
0: setting. to visit. I need to go. We haven't we haven't gone back to India since we uh, moved uh, just because after India, we were in uh, Dubai, then Dallas, then Arkansas. Now we're in Greenwich and going, we're going back to Dallas this year. Oh, so.
1: okay. We uh, moved around quite a bit. Oh, my yeah. Lord,
0: help me. And then the, the two babies in between and just, yeah. Um, but dying to go back—it's been—it's been too long. Um, okay, uh, just a few fun closing questions. Sure. If you could collaborate with anyone, who would it be?
1: I've always been a fan of Oprah. Right? I've even a lot of
0: brown girls say that. But I—I
1: I just feel yeah. like. When I was growing up, Oprah was on television, right? And so you would come home from school at four o'clock, she would be on television, and she just talked about things that I'd never seen talked about before. Um, So just from a woman of color perspective, with everything that we're doing, it just, I would love
0: it. feels like she could be your friend, right? I'm like, I think she could be, you know, her and I could be friends. Yes. Like if she met me, she would want (laughs) to hang with me, I think, right? (laughs) Um, Is there a South Asian woman you look up to that you would like to work with?
1: Um, you know, I've been following quite a bit for the last year at Deepika with her new Live Tinted yeah. um, makeup line, some of the messages She's about accepting yourself. Yeah, yeah. Like accepting yourself and who you are. So, um, yeah, I, I look up, I, I don't know. I, I, more just like I would love to just have a conversation about like how she's come to some of that and you know what she continues to want to work on and so much so much of the messaging is about accepting yourself which is what I think we need more of right yeah. I, think, you know, I mean I briefly touched on this before I think we started but I think there's a lot of being confused when you're South Asian and growing up in the United States and a lot of pain and shame and wanting to deny kind of our past and I think that's changing with folks that are younger than me but I think it's just starting to pivot and so I think it's an important conversation and I love that she's leading some of that
0: yeah If you could have a billboard on a major highway anywhere forever, what would be on it?
1: I love the slogans around be the change, right? Like be the change you want to see. But I also have a, a kind of a, what's a plaque or like a a quote, I have quotes everywhere, as you can see in the background, but I have a quote my background and my bathroom that I love. And it's kind of like the universe will never give you more than you need. It'll only give you, you know, what you can, what you can hold, handle, you know? And so I, I believe that. And I don't know that I always did. I mean, part of my journey after getting sick and leaving corporate is, is not just getting more spiritual, but realizing that when you're in a machine or when you're in a process, like we tend to think like we know best and sometimes we don't. Right. And that we don't make space for that. And so,
0: yeah, I love I love that sort of thinking right now. At the end of the day, at the end of life, what would you like to be known for?
1: Obviously, leaving leaving the world better than I found it, um, you know, is an easy one or a straightforward one. But I think it's more that I found my purpose and I was happy with what I contributed. Right. I, I, I am big on not regretting. And I think just having pivoted a 20 year career that felt like it took so much for me. I just and I'm in a place where it's taken me a long time, but I'm happy and I'm content and I'm doing what I love and I just want to continue that. So,
0: yeah, just being cheers. And cheers yeah. to that. Cheers to that. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers to like getting to know yourself uh, at a later phase in life. Yeah, yeah, it can um, be done. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's also a big message for me. And I tell a lot of my friends, I'm like, it's it's sounds cheesy. It's just never too late. Yeah, it's never to, too late to figure it out or to change or to question. I think, I think that's another main thing, a big, big idea for a woman of color. Don't, don't worry about what everyone else thinks. What's a lovely human being. I swear the whole time she had this smile on, she had this radiance coming out from her. Just what good energy. You guys, please check out her site, dot com, to see what she's up to. Hopefully, when this stupid pandemic ends, she'll be coming to your city for dinner. As always, follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast, com, Apple Reviews, blah, blah, blah. You know what to do. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. This is Tuckered Out.